Well, Merry Christmas. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. That's normally what people are expecting around Christmas time is to see Hebrews chapter 12. Not, not truly. I think this is not a, a normal Christmas text. So one of the things I was thinking about was uh, a sermon I heard several years ago on the idea of Emmanuel, God with us. And the pastor used the structure of that one word for the whole framework of his message. And the more I was thinking about that framework, I thought, you know, I think we could take something very Christmas and familiar and apply it to something that is a little less familiar to a lot of us as we look at Hebrews chapter 12 and finish up this chapter and hopefully be able to get a connection between Advent and our study of Hebrews. So that's the plan this morning. I would like to hijack that structure of his message. And so we're going to have three sections. We're going to look at Jesus is God. We're going to look, secondly, that Jesus is God with us. And then thirdly, we're going to look that Jesus is God with us. So there you go. Simple, short, Emmanuel, God with us. So we're going to think through today from the book of Hebrews. So if you would, let's look at chapter 12, found on page 1009 of these black Bibles around you. And I'm going to start reading in verse 12. This is where we left off last week. And then read through the end of the chapter. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and a sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have not, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order 
that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. There's a lot that's going on in this passage, so that's why I figured let's try and make things quite simple and familiar and hopefully glean from this passage these three important truths. First, Jesus is God. Jesus is the God of verses 18 through 21 that we just read. The God who is a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, which is you know, a, a wild storm. He is the sound of a trumpet. He is the voice whose hearers begged that no further messages would be heard. You know, the passage here makes it quite plain that there is a holy, righteous, awesome God that we should fear. And a lot of times, I think, as we're thinking through Christmas, we might not attach those ideas to Jesus. Oh, that's the God of the Old Testament. You know, the God of the Old Testament's different than the cute, cuddly baby Jesus version of our God. But friends, make no mistake here. Jesus is this God, the God of Hebrews 12, 18 through 21, which is a reference to the passage that Carl read early from Deuteronomy. It is a, a terrifying vision when you read that passage, to think that they couldn't get close to the mountain, and even the beasts, the animals, if they got too close, they would be burned or killed or stoned to death. We see even as this passage concludes, for our God is a consuming fire. There's not some difference in the mind of the author of the Hebrews of the Old Testament Jewish God and the New Testament God, Jesus. You can see quite plainly from verse 24 and 25 that when he mentions Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and the blood that he sprinkled, you see in verse 25 he says, see that you do not refuse him, that is Jesus. He is the one who is speaking. And there's this contrast between the God who spoke in the Old Testament with thunder and lightning and this awesome, amazing scene. Well, and then that same God, Jesus Christ, he is the consuming fire. So friends, I ask you this morning, when you think through Jesus, do you see him as a mighty God? As Isaiah chapter 9 prophesies of the one who would come, the, the child to be born, the baby in the manger, the one whom the government will be upon his shoulders, and of the increase of his government there shall be no end. You know, that's in direct correlation to what we've just read here in Hebrews chapter 12. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. That means he's going to overthrow all governments. Do you understand that the, the baby Jesus is the one that's going to shake all nations and overthrow every kingdom and ruler? Because there will be one final king and one final ruler, and that will be Jesus. So what we have here before us when we see this passage from Haggai being uh, quoted, this is in verse 26 and following, at that time his voice shook the earth, and that's referring to the Sinai passage. But he's promised, and then this is a quotation, yet once more I will not only shake the earth but also the heavens, and that comes straight from Haggai chapter 2, which was a promise to the people of Israel that one day, God would make everything right, and all nations would be kind of consumed under the one mighty king, and that king is Jesus. Friends, do you see that our songs that we sing and our celebration of the Christmas season is of a mighty God, a mighty king? 
And I wonder if you have hope in the power of Jesus. Because if he's just some teacher, if he's just another Messiah, there's a lot of people that believe that there's Messiahs around the world. Or that there were other Messiahs apart from Jesus in Jesus' day. But see, what makes Jesus different is that he wasn't just another Messiah or another teacher. He was the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. We'll sing in just a moment from the familiar Christmas song, O Holy Night. Chains he shall break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. With all our hearts we praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord, his power and his glory forevermore. Is that the God of Christmas that you worship? See, the main point of this passage is that you would not refuse or reject the holy, awesome Jesus. Look with me again more closely. See to it that none of you fails to obtain the grace of God. That's verse 15. And then look further when he says in verse 25, see that none of you refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him and he warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who has warned us from heaven. This is the fifth and final warning that you get in the book of Hebrews. This is actually, I think, the conclusion and the climax of the preacher's sermon. We've mentioned this all throughout our series, that the letter of Hebrews is not really a letter, it's a sermon written down for us to read. And here we have him kind of summing up things that he's been saying all throughout this book. And this point in particular, he's made from the very beginning. His first warning in chapter 2 was, make sure you listen to Jesus. If the people that disobeyed when the message was brought through Moses and the angels on Mount Sinai, and you reject that message, then how much more will you be punished if you reject the message that came through Jesus, God himself? And it seems as if here in chapter 12, he's making that same point again. If you reject the message that came on Mount Sinai, and those people were punished for rejecting that message, well, then how much more if that message comes not just from angels coming down to Moses on tablets, but to God, from God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So friends, realize that if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting God. And notice the way that some people have rejected God throughout all of history for such pitiful things. This is where the story of Esau comes in. Look down at verse 15 and 16. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. And then he brings up Esau, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. You realize now Esau would have been the son of Isaac. So you have Abraham, who's been given this wonderful promise. He's going to have this wonderful inheritance. And that promise was then passed down to Isaac. And then Isaac had twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And now Esau was the older brother and deserved the inheritance. And then the promise that was being passed down from Abraham to Isaac. And then now to Esau. But in a moment of weakness, when he was hungry, so hungry that he decided to throw away and forfeit all of that inheritance and all of God's blessing 
for a stew, a cup of soup. Think ramen noodles, college students. Could you imagine throwing away riches and promises of riches and land and family and just all of it, you can name it, and just think all of these things that are coming down the road, but right here and now, in this moment of instant gratification, he chose the soup. Friends, this is the thing that you and I should fear, that we would not choose temporary, fleeting, nearsighted pleasures for an inheritance that is being given to us, a promise that's being made, and a kingdom that cannot be shaken that will last forever and ever. You see, one of the key key ways for you to live the Christian life is to realize the importance of delayed gratification. Can you be patient enough to wait? If you can, then hopefully you'll see that what has been offered to you all through the book of Hebrews is not only that Jesus is God, but that his kingdom is unstoppable, unshakable, it lasts forever, the rewards and the promises are fantastic, so we can let go of these temporary earthly things. So before we look to Jesus as the King of all kings and Lord of all lords, as he renews and restores his kingdom, we see that Jesus is the God who came, was a baby, born of a virgin, lived a life here on earth, and died a death that you and I deserved. Jesus is God. That's our first thing we want to consider here. Second thing we want to consider is that Jesus is with us. He is God with us. And I get this from the idea of the contrast you see from verses 18 to 21, and then the important 22, but. You see in verse 18, you have, for you have not come to what may be touched. And so there's a contrast here of the old Sinai approach to the holy, righteous God. And in verse 22, but no, that's not who you have come to. You have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And and what's interesting about this section is that there's seven things listed about Mount Sinai, and there's seven things listed about Mount Zion. And they're paralleling one another, perfectly, beautifully, poetically. And what we find in this comparison is that God is holy, and to approach Him and be near Him is impossible for an unholy, sinful people in this first account in verses 18 through 21. The sound of the trumpet whose voice had made the hearers beg that they would hear no further messages. Indeed, even Moses himself was trembling with fear. So we contrast this sight of fear and trembling in mighty words with 22. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable angels in the festal gathering. See, God has revealed himself on another mountain and in another city. If all we had was Deuteronomy chapter 19 that was read to us earlier, then all we would be able to do is just see God from a distance. All we would do is see him in a cloud of fire and see him as somebody that's so far off that we can't get close to. 
the whole beautiful thing about Christmas is that God is with us. He came down from that mountain. He came down to be with us and be one of us. The separation between sinful man and a holy God is now revealed in a whole nother way. That God has revealed himself through the person of Jesus by becoming a baby. He would shed his blood and he would invite us to a feast. How different is that picture from 18 through 21 to this idea of feast and a gathering, a, a party you could say. This, this phrase, the festal gathering of the innumerable angels is, is an Old Testament phrase used of all of these marvelous feasts and celebrations for God's people. And I think one of the reasons why a lot of people don't even give Christianity a, a second look is because they think of it as a list of rules to follow. Or they think of it as, you know, being really determined to be a holy, righteous person. And, and all of those things have their aspect of what Christianity is. But I wonder, how many of you think of Christianity as waiting for the day for the festal gathering? Or waiting for the day of the joyful celebration of all of God's people, His angels, Jesus the mediator, all of the perfect who have been made righteous, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. There's this great assembly. And this is why the scripture readings this morning in our service were contrasting. You have the Mount Sinai picture. But then you have a whole other picture in Revelation 21 where God comes down from heaven onto earth and it says that God will dwell with his people. This is the beautiful picture we have of God with us, the, the contrast between the revelation of the Old Testament and the revelation of Jesus Christ, the God-man made flesh. And so I ask you this morning, how much did Jesus sacrifice in order to be with you? Did it cost him very much? He doesn't want to just know you generally generally know his people from afar. He wants to know you personally, intimately. He wants to be with you. And that cost him a lot. His life, it cost him a great distance to travel to get to you and me from heaven to earth. It cost him great vulnerability to become an infant in a manger, humble himself, would you consider the cost that God has made to be with you this Christmas season? And as you do, ask yourself this question. What cost are you willing to give to be with him? You know, this idea of having an unshakable kingdom because he will once more shake the earth. The reason why we have entrance into this kingdom that can never be shaken because at great cost to his life, Jesus was shaken on a cross. I mean that literally, not just metaphorically. The holy God in Deuteronomy chapter 19 that comes down with fire and shows his holiness and the separation between sinful man and, and God is beautifully pictured in the cross of Jesus Christ. Where you see the, the holiness of the ground shaking beneath all of the people. You see the curtain being torn in two where the divide between man and his holiness, God's holiness and man and his sinfulness is now 
bridged and that gap has now a bridge over. Do you see now that in Jesus, by him being literally shaken on the cross, you and I can have a kingdom where we can be with God forever, and it will never, ever end. So friend, I ask you, what are you willing to sacrifice to be with him? Might it be 30 minutes less sleep to wake up early or stay up late to spend time with him? Might it be to say no to a favorite television program or a movie and spend time with him? When you think through the great length he went to be with you, those seem like such pathetic things for us to be with him. True Christians are those who don't want to just know God generally, from afar, but personally be with him. Is that you? You ever notice the way people act around celebrities that they don't really know, like from afar? They generally know a lot about somebody. They might know their whole life and their history and every single music album that they've ever put on if they're a a music celebrity or an actor, every single movie they've ever done. You could know a lot about somebody personally. But then there's that moment, especially if you've ever been around somebody that's idolized this one particular person. They're like, oh, they're my favorite, you know? And then all of a sudden, they had the chance to be with them. And it's like they, they come undone. They don't know what to say. They're speechless. There's this overwhelming awe and feeling of like, wow, I was, I was with them. Friends, what, what a pitiful illustration of the withness, the joy of being with God. And that we don't just want to know him from afar. We don't just want to know him from reading facts about him in a book. Well, I know these things about God. I can pass the test about who the one true God is. No, I'm with him. I know him. Encourage us this Christmas season to spend time setting aside moments where we're just in awe of the fact that we can be with God, with his word, with his people. What better way to offer up acceptable worship with reverence and awe than to be grateful that Jesus Christ has made a way for us to be with him. So Jesus is God. Jesus is God with us. And finally, Jesus is God with us. Notice that Emmanuel does not mean God with all, which means that Christianity is a bit exclusive, which is part of why people, I think, are a bit irritated, especially at Christmas time of Christians, and the exclusivity of, of Christianity, that Jesus is the only way. Christmas is the only season, or, or, or the, Jesus is the, the reason for the season, or all those sort of cliche phrases. And, and I think one of the things I want us to consider as we think about this exclusiveness that God is with us, us meaning his people. Now, he brings peace to the whole world, but he does not bring salvation to every single individual in the whole world. It's to us, his people. This is plain from the passage of Scripture that we've read in Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 12 and following. 
Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Do you see the the separation or the exclusive nature of the people of God? They're distinct. They're set out. They're marked off by their holiness. There is a holiness for which if you don't have this holiness, you will not see God. There will be no God with us in your life if you do not obtain the holiness that is necessary to be with God. That's what I'm saying. This this is what makes Christianity and Christmas time so irritating for people around the world. It's it's so offensive to say that Jesus is the only God. And this is the only way to be with God. Now, I know that sometimes our Christmas season, we can be irritating and annoying just because we yell at business folk about keeping Christ in Christmas when that's never their mission or purpose to begin with. See, there's an offensiveness of the gospel that we should leave just in the gospel. And then there's an offensiveness because you're just being offensive. And so I would encourage us to think through the difference this morning between yelling at people to say, no, no, Merry Christmas to you. Happy holidays is perfectly legitimate. You know, I I doubt many people are coming to salvation because we say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. Now, if that's your agenda or hobby horse, by all means, I would encourage you to maybe second guess that agenda or hobby horse. But the point is, there is an offensive nature in the gospel, and it doesn't have to be added to by our belligerence to tell people Merry Christmas every time we see them or greet them this season. The offensive nature is that there is a holiness that is necessary for someone to be with God And that holiness can only come through the blood of Jesus Christ, the sprinkled blood. Look at verse 24. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's the blood that makes the church righteous. That's the blood that makes you holy. That's the blood that speaks out for pardon and forgiveness instead of vengeance. You see what he's referring to here is the blood of Abel after Abel was killed brutally in Genesis chapter 3. It says in Genesis chapter 3 that, or Genesis 4, that Abel's blood was speaking out against his killer and demanding vengeance. But Jesus' blood, as it was spilled on that cross, isn't speaking out for vengeance, but forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. See, that's the blood that makes the the church, the spirit of the righteous, made perfect in verse 23. This gathering of people, this unshakable kingdom, which all of these spirit of righteous will be made perfect, can only be made perfect through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So, is it arrogant or 
Is it obnoxious for us to demand and tell people that, look, there is one way to be made righteous with God? No. It's not narrow-minded. It is exclusive, but it's not narrow-minded. It would be like, I've been struggling with a cold for the last few weeks. I don't know if that's obvious to you, but if I were to see a hundred doctors in the next few days, because I am sick and tired of this, and I want to figure out what in the world is wrong with me, and all a hundred of the doctors say, you just have a common cold, Phil. You need to rest, drink lots of fluids, et cetera, et cetera, the normal things that you say for the common cold. But then what if I see 101 doctors, and that last and final doctor says, I want to take a deeper, closer look into your sinuses. I want to do further testing. I want to go just beyond the symptoms that you're describing to me. I want to really diagnose more deeply the problem that you're struggling with. And what if he concludes that I don't just have a common cold, but I have a a rare or awful disease, and I'm going to die, and I need surgery, or I need some sort of medicine. Would I look at that doctor and tell him, you know, that's offensive to me. I'm really upset, and you're arrogant to say this. No, he just had a different diagnosis. You see, when we say that Jesus is God with us, and us being only those who see that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to make one righteous, it's an exclusive claim. It's not a narrow-minded claim. It's a different diagnosis. So friends, I want us to encourage you. I want to encourage you to think through this idea. When we give the gospel of Jesus and the offensive nature of it, the reason why it's offensive is because we're giving a deeper diagnosis, if you want to put it that way. Unlike the other hundred doctors that were looking at just the superficial symptoms of my cold, The one doctor said, I want to look deeper and test more widely and thoroughly of your body. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done. He's not just like every other world religion where he looks at the normal symptoms of humanity and says, hey, I'm a teacher and I'm going to offer you these lists of things to do or these good morals for you to uphold. I'm going to dive deeper into my diagnosis and say your heart is the problem. You're sick with sin, and therefore you need something more than just a moral teacher. You need God with us. You need Jesus Christ's blood to make us righteous. One of the wonderful things about this idea that God is with us is that not only is it not God with all, but it's not God with you. I think this is the other final concluding statement that we could get as we see this sermon concluding. and We see that it's summing up a lot of the themes of this passage, the whole book. We notice that in verse 14 of chapter 12, it says that we should strive for peace with everyone. And it says in verse 15 that we should together, collectively, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See, it's, it's not you and Jesus and a, the wonderful feelings you get about your personal relationship with him. But the meaning of Christmas is that God is with us collectively. Therefore, there is a collective need for all of us 
to obey these commands, to strive to be at peace with everyone and see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Do you care about the other people sitting around you this morning and the bitterness that might cause them to stumble and falter and throw away their faith like Esau? Or are you just consumed about your own personal agenda? See, all throughout the book of Hebrews, we've seen again and again that we should not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but that we should all the more spur each other on. That was Hebrews chapter 10. Or in Hebrews chapter 3, we should encourage each other daily as long as it's called today so that none of us are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. All throughout this book, we're given these stern warnings, but we're given these corporate encouragements that God is with us collectively. And so we collectively work together as a community project to ensure that we finish our race well. And we come to the end looking forward to this city with the living God in it. The Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the festal gathering. So I ask you, when you think through what it means to be a part of a church, do you think, well, what can I get out of it? Or do you think, what can I join and be a part of how God has come down and saved a people, His people? And so therefore, you are one of many people, and you collectively want to link arms with those people in local churches and make sure that all of us would make it to the end. You see, John Wesley, before he died, said, his dying words on his lips, the best of all is God with us. That's the best of all. I suggest that as some people, like John Wesley, have died with the words God with us on their lips, that you and I not just during this Christmas season, but all of our lives would live with them on our hearts. God with us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks this morning. As this passage has said, be grateful for the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And God, we want to give you thanks for a kingdom that cannot be shaken that you will overthrow all government, leaders, and rulers. There will be just one prince of peace, and peace will reign. There will be just one king of kings. And thank you, God, for the wonderful promise that's before us in this passage of Scripture, that Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the one who made it all possible for us. So may we continue to worship now in reverence and in awe. For you are a consuming fire. In Jesus' name, amen.